Right, okay, let's, uh, let's make a start. Thank you very much for coming. Um, there is a handout uh, which is entitled Old English and Context Free and then um, Pagan Fossils is the first um, subheading. And really that's what the, the purpose of today is, to try and take you through some of the issues surrounding religion which impact on Old English literature and um, take you through some of the areas perhaps you, you haven't necessarily covered and give a bit more context uh, to the pieces of work you're looking at. So, I'm going to do a few things. I'm going to talk a bit about this sort of mixture of, of science and religion and magic, and I think we came across that in the first lecture where I said about historical fact. What we accept as historical fact would be very different to what perhaps the Anglo-Saxons would have accepted as historical fact. I'll talk a bit about magic. I'll have a look at religions, and then I'm going to really concentrate on Christianity because it is the dominant religion from the period and show how that impacts on some of the literature and some of the pieces of literature you're looking at. So, if we were to try and look at a definition of religion, science or magic, this I think is lifted from the OED, um, you can see that there is a difference. Action or conduct indicating a belief in reverence for and desire to please a divine ruling power, so that's religion, the state or fact of knowing, that's science, and the use of ritual activities or observances which are intended to influence the course of events to manipulate the natural world, and that might be a definition of magic. And I think what we're going to see, certainly through the first half of this talk, is that those definitions cannot be applied to what we uncover in Anglo-Saxon literature because they all come together. A simple example to start with. Bald's Leech book is a medical book um, from the Anglo-Saxon period and I, I showed you a bit from it last year, uh, last year, yes, last term, when we were looking at the liver and things like that. But here is, in the middle of a series of medical remedies to try and help you get over the pox or whatever, against one possessed by a devil, put in holy water and ale and bishop work and water agony, agony Alexander Cockle and give him to drink. So you can see it's a bringing together of folk medicine um, with religion against uh, an ailment which you would actually say is religious, i.e. possession by the devil. Okay, so let's start which religion. I'll come back to this little chap in a second um, uh, because he, he is important. You may, not want, you may wonder why a sparrow is important, but believe you me, he is important. Um, but first of all, let's start with a, a clip from a film because it makes a few nice points and it's, well, it's after lunch and I'm sure everyone needs waking up, so. I hope I haven't spoiled the ending. Has anyone here not seen The Wicker Man? What? <laughs> Finest British horror film ever made. You haven't seen the Nicolas Cage remake? No, don't watch that. That's just rubbish. Brilliant film. Absolutely surreal, inspired, fantastic. Anyway, I won't show the rest because it might reveal the ending. Um, but anyway, the reason I kind of the reason I show this is because there's a few few things happening in this. There's two clips from the film, but this is towards the end of the film. So first of all, there is this bizarre procession, the type of thing you might see drunken people doing in May Day or um, out in the Cotswold villages, where you have a range of characters. Christopher that is Christopher Lee um, dancing there in some sort of green man type. You have Punch, you have the hobby horse, you have people dressed as animals. This is all tenuous, by the way, but anyway, we'll come on to that in a second. And then at the end, you have 
what is, let's say, the attempted human sacrifice of Edward Woodward, as long as Olivier said sounded like a fart in a bath, but anyway, that's by the by, Edward Woodward, who is sacrificed there because he's a virgin and the pagan worshippers are singing, uh, it's actually a, a Middle English song about the coming of spring, the cuckoo, and then at the end, Edward Woodward launches into The Lord's My Shepherd. So there's a lot of things going on in that film, and it starts to pose these questions about religions and beliefs. And really, if you think of England or of the British Isles, it is a bit of a crucible of all kinds of different religious practices and beliefs. And that's what that film was picking up. But at the end, the clash of religions. You have the pagans safely on the ground, and you have the Christian in the wicker man slowly burning to death. Does he get out? I won't let you know. Anyway, so, which religion? Now, if you were to probably ask someone who hasn't read anything about this, they will tell you there are two basic religions going on in the Anglo-Saxon period. There is Christianity, and then there are the Germanic beliefs. Okay, and there's a nice little cartoon picture of uh, Marvel's, Marvel's uh, Thor. Now, notice immediately I've put Christianities, which is a question we will have to come on to. That is fine, that is simplistic, but it's not the truth because there is a third religion which is hanging around and that is what you might want to call the indigenous British religion. When the Romans Christianised um, Britain, of course, then people gradually converted. But what did they believe before? So possibly hanging around we have the beliefs of the Celts mixed in with the belief of the Anglo-Saxons and then suddenly we have Christianity and not to mention the old Roman beliefs as well. So, Celtic beliefs. What can we try and piece together about the evidence of what the, the British tribes, before they were Christianised and dominated by Roman Britain, actually believed? It's very, very difficult. And this is a point I will come back to again and again. If we have a look at writings and observations by the Anglo-Saxons and maybe have a look at some stuff which comes out of um, Celtic writing and then some archaeology and put it together, we can get some ideas. For example, they clearly did worship natural elements such as the sun and the moon and the earth. And they are very uh, much into worshipping water. So sites of natural water was, it was a, a place of worship for the Celts. Uh, they also had their deities, but information about them is really sparse. And the book which I will be constantly coming back to when you see reference to storms is G. Storm's Anglo-Saxon Magic 1948 because I think it starts to give us some ideas. So let's just have a look at possibly some survivals of Celtic beliefs. So here we have storms. This is actually on your handout. It's about the 4th entry, I'm afraid. Um, this Storms is basically collects together spells or charms from the Anglo-Saxon period. And this one is recorded in Anglo-Saxon by a monk, a Christian, Eche, eche, eche. Who is Eche? We have no idea. Mother of Earth. Well, it kind of implies that this must have been some character or some uh, deity that was perhaps um, Mother Earth or an Earth Goddess. May the omnipotent, eternal Lord grant you fields growing and thriving. So it is a, it's a spell to try and get you a, a good harvest. If a man is troubled by tumours near the heart, let a girl go to a spring that runs due east and let her draw a cup full of water moving with the current and let her sing on it the creed and our, our father do so for nine days and you will soon be better. So if you've got a dodgy ticker, here is a spell to help you out. You need a girl and you need a well. But why concentrate on a cup full of water from a stream? Is that a fossil, a pagan fossil from the Celtic beliefs? Possibly. Now the problem we have is that, and this, when you start revealing that you're studying this period, you're going to get asked this, 
Are these guys giving us any indication of what happened in that period? Now, I, I'm going to say a few things about religion in this lecture, and I do not want to insult anyone who might subscribe to any particular religion, but the evidence that these resurrections of the old faith, the evidence that is based on it is tenuous and it is minimal and it is practically zero. And the important point that you should recognise is you are studying the period when this evidence would survive. From sometime the 5th century up to the 11th, 12th century. That is the formation. That is the, 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 the time period when evidence about their practices and beliefs would have survived. It doesn't. We get glimpses of it. So unless there is some incredible conspiracy theory, which none of us know about, that somehow there is a book or they were handed down verbally throughout the last two or three thousand years, and these people know something that the rest of us don't know who've studied this period for 20 or 30 years, you can pretty much conjecture that what they're doing is not very accurate. So, Germanic beliefs. What do we know about what the Anglo-Saxons might have brought with them when they migrated to uh, England at the beginning, in the migration period? Well, and I'm going to come back to this. Obviously, if they came from Scandinavia or from Denmark, then we have possibly a connection there with the later recordings of the Old Norse beliefs. And it would appear that they did worship these pantheon of gods, um, Odin, Thor, Chu, Freya. And I'll come on to evidence about this in a second. And it would appear they brought the stories and myths and legends with them, which we find in Old Norse mythology. I already showed you, I think it was last week or the week before, Alfred, King Alfred's genealogy, which goes way back to Noah, but in the middle you get the appearance of Woden, the god, the, um, the god of uh, the Old Norse. We have this mysterious god called Ing, who is like an all-encompassing god, um, which survives in place names, in names of tribes. When I mentioned to you that you have a place name like Birmingham, it is true that that word means descendant, but it is also tied in probably with the worship of some now lost god called Ing. And we also know that the Anglo-Saxons believed there were creatures like elves, dragons, trolls, giants, orcs, boggarts, puck, etc. Their evidence for dwarves, as in hi-ho, hi-ho, is a bit tenuous, but anyway, it is there. And I'll show you examples of these in a second. So, um, if you do want to go and pursue particularly Old Norse mythology, I would suggest Gunnell's article in Beowulf and other stories as a, as a nice introduction to this. The obvious example of where these survive is in the days of the week, Tuesday, Woden's Day, Thor's Day, Freya's Day. They retained that right throughout the Anglo-Saxon period. And obviously, we retain it to the modern day. It's not what happens in Romance languages. I've already mentioned last week about heroic ideals. Heroic ideals could point back to these Germanic beliefs, the Comitatus. But if we have a look in Beowulf, you will find pagan burials and sacrifices which the scribe or the poet certainly seem to be familiar with. And then if you have a look at poems like Deor and Widsith, you will see a litany of Germanic legends and characters. Names. Names give us this. Alf, any name that begins with ALF, apart from the Animal Liberation Front, is from the word Elf. So Alf read is Alfrad, Elf Wisdom. Okay? So they used to put their names together a bit like the um, Native American Indians. 
and spells. For Woden took nine glory twigs and he smote then the adder that it flew apart into nine. A spell written down or a charm by an Anglo-Saxon monk and somehow used as some folklore or some sort of medicine or magic. This is your remedy for a shot of the Aether. That is the shot of the elves. This for the shot of hags. I will help you. And we hear a lot about elf shots. So this idea that some disease perhaps could be triggered by the fact that, I guess, some hiding in a bush or somewhere, there's an elf with a bow and arrow shooting at you. Elf sickness. Take the bishop's wart, fennel, lupine, the lower part of Enchanter's nightshade, and leeching from a hallowed crucifix. So elfic, possibly chicken pox, but anyway, elf sickness, that is your medicine for it. But again, look, it's a mixture of herbal medicine and then a hallowed crucifix in there. Make a salve against the race of elves and against spirits walking about at night and against women with whom the devil has sex. You make some sort of potion and this will protect you against all these nasty creatures. But a big, big, big health warning because, and this came up on Tuesday in my tutorial, a lot of people have a lot of evidence with the old Norse myths. Okay? And they say, ah, oh, we can recount all these fantastic tales about the old Norse pantheon, etc. And that is true. There is evidence there. And it is well documented. But the texts that we rely on, the prose and poetic edda, are from the 13th century. Two or three hundred years after that area of Scandinavia was Christianized. So those people are writing a vulgarized, a warped version, perhaps, of Old Norse mythology. It clearly indicates that this is a reasonably accurate, or there's some accuracy in there of previous legends, but we have to mention that and we have to bear that in mind. However, if you look at archaeological findings, not perhaps literary findings, there is evidence there which backs up the worship of these gods in that area of Europe as well, and therefore if we put the two, we can perhaps piece together what the Anglo-Saxons thought. Okay, magic. What is magic? Well, if we figure out those definitions of the OED, you would say it's not an organised religion. It's a perhaps disorganised religion. It's a series of charms and spells which allows you to um, bring forth some sort of natural change. There are a lot of words for it, but they tend to be the words that we would want to expect and which survives later, witchcraft, etc. So we have evidence of witches and wizards. And... If you have never looked at this, let me I'll see if I'm still online, you never know. What I would suggest you do is, if you're ever set a theme, um, I don't know, it might be a theme of kingship, of loyalty or whatever, first of all use the Old English thesaurus, and I'll go back to the main homepage, so you can start, for example, what words do the Anglo-Saxons have for witchcraft? And you will see there is a lot of words they had for witchcraft or a sorcerer, a wizard, a witch, a sorceress to use witchcraft, etc., etc., etc. And then you can take any of those words and probably choose the most common and put them in the Old English corpus, witch, a craft. This is searching every word that we have recorded in Old English. And there you have more citations than your tutor will know what to deal with just using the word witchcraft. And you will see it's from the types of things we would expect. Alfred's Catholic homilies, I'll talk about him, Lies of Saints, Wolfstan later on. Okay? So that's if you, a good tip for you if you're pursuing a theme. So when we look at what evidence there, and there is considerable evidence, we can see that they had charms against all kinds of things. Not just against disease, but against misfortune. 
We also see uh, mentions of magicians, of magic circles, of amulets, magic weapons, and so on. But the question I would like to pose is, it's science. The question is, what did they think was science? What would we think is science? They certainly thought that a study of the heavens and the skies, astronomy and astrology, was science. They put a lot of effort into computers, which is nothing to do with IT. It's to do with the calculation of Easter, and there's a whole book written on it if you want to go and read Beatrice and Chiridion. They certainly would have viewed medicine as science, the study of medicine. We have the leech book, the physiologus, we have herbariums, giving you all these kinds of medicines you can use. But the question is, where does science become magic, become religion? Is this science? I wouldn't suggest you try it. None of you probably have to try it yet. None of you are going bald. But one of the remedies in the leech book is to burn bees because they're hairy. It kind of makes sense. And you rub it on your head and then you'll get your hair back. Tell that to Elton John. Swelling in the neck, mingle together meal of barley and clear pitch and wax and oil and boil and add the urine of a boy or a child. Again, I wouldn't suggest you do that. Like if you're rubbing it on your neck, probably wouldn't harm you too much. Again, stomach ache, when you see a dung beetle throw up earth, catch it between your two hands together with a heat, wave it vigorously with your hands and say three times, remedium facio ad ventris dolorum. This is real Harry Potter stuff, isn't it? So you have the natural elements which are in the first two charms and then suddenly in Latin you're doing an incantation which must, I guess, release the magic. Against pains in the joints, sing nine times this charm on them. Nine is a magic number and spit your spittle on the sixth spot. Malignus obligavit, angulus curavit, dominus salvavit. He will soon be better. I sincerely doubt that. But anyway, they would have viewed this as scientific fact. They would have viewed this as absolutely kosher. You could use this fine. But what we're seeing here is a mixture again and again of all these different beliefs. Now, witchcraft certainly survives. You may think witchcraft is something which we, we um, dismiss early on and it might have been obliterated after three or four hundred years of, of Christianity, but it wasn't. We already saw when I, I threw up the word witchcraft in the Old English Corpus, there's homilies by Alfred and Wolfstan who are writing around the period 1000. If we look at the law codes for King Edgar, um, he's right, he's the law, Edgar the Peaceful, mid-10th century, and we enjoin that every priest zealously promote Christianity and totally extinguish every heathenism and forbid well-worshippings, going back possibly to Celtic beliefs, and necromancies and divinations and enchantments and man-worshippings and the vain practices which are carried on with various spells and so on. So even in the law codes in the 10th century, they were trying to argue against it. If we go to the end of the 11th century, end of the 10th century, early 11th century, Alfrich is writing, Some men since swa a blender that he bringeth her lark to aork fastum stana, and aork to treoum, unto will springum, swa swa witch and tarketh. Some men are so misguided or blinded that they bring their offerings to a stone fixed in the ground, a worship of natural places, possibly Celtic beliefs, and also to trees and to well springs, just as witches teach. And if you look to that text, Sermon of the Wolf, Wolfstan's Sermon, 1014, he rails against witchcraft. It's one of the things he's having a go at. And on your handout, you will see a homily by Wolfstan on false gods. So what I'm saying is that although it may have gone underground, even by the 11th century, the Anglo-Saxons were vexed, or the Christian Anglo-Saxons were vexed with the fact that some form of pagan beliefs, obviously quite strong pagan beliefs, survived. So, in summary so far, 
The Anglo-Saxon period is definitely a clash of religions. It is one of the great interesting points about the Anglo-Saxon period that you have this fusion. There are some fossils which give us indications about the British or Germanic beliefs, but they are few and far between. There is a blurring of the boundaries that we would perhaps quite easily distinguish between magic and science. But, as we've seen there, when there's the use of the crucifix or the use of the incantations, magic was appropriated by the church. And that's a key term we'll come back to, appropriation by the church. So, it brings into question what an organised religion was. Let us have a look at the traditional organised religions that we would probably list from today. And first thing to say is about Judaism and Islam. Um, there, are, there is no r recorded evidence of Jews or Muslims in, Ang in Anglo-Saxon England. Okay? They knew about them, but they just weren't here, as, as religious beliefs weren't here. Or if they were, there is, there is no recorded evidence. Now, in the case of Islam, what happens, of course, is in the, in the 8th century, the early 8th century, Spain is conquered by the Moors, but 732, that march north by the Muslims of the Islamic faith is stopped at the Battle of Poitiers. So they probably would have known they were there, but again, there is no evidence in their writings that they paid them any credence or were concerned about them. We have no mention of them. There are considerable... <coughs> Uh, amount of mentions about Jews in Anglo-Saxon literature um, and some of its confusion for example when Alfred is writing his homily on the books of Maccabees or Esther from the Old Testament which of course are based on Jewish beliefs he struggles, he can't quite understand about Jewish feasts he has a go uh, trying to explain them and he certainly thinks his audience should understand them but there are also of course prejudices now this is not anti-Semitism it is based in a period of course where ingrained into their everyday beliefs was the fact that the Jews had crucified Christ. So when they are looking at uh, the Jews, certainly from the Old and New Testament, they put them against those who were enlightened in their views and have adopted the Christian faith. But, as we will come back to a bit later on, the Saxons um, saw the Old Testament as part of the whole Christian story. They didn't just think the Old Testament was a Jewish set of texts and the New Testament was Christian. It was all one together because they tried to link the two. Um, and they recognised and related to the Israelites. I'll come on to that a bit later on. All right, so quick, quick pop quiz. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up or shout out the answers. True or false? In Anglo-Saxon in the 10th century, priests could get married. True, of course. First thousand years of Catholicism, they didn't care. Priests could happily get married. Easter is named after St. Eostra. Nope. Easter, Eostra is a pagan god or goddess. We don't know who it is, but it's mentioned in Bede, so survives. Divorce and remarriage was illegal under the eyes of the church. Not true. They didn't care. Church did had a, no interest whatsoever in the marriage ceremony until it realised A, it could make money out of it and B, it could control the population you could happily divorce and remarry in Anglo-Saxon England it's all these later things that were imposed anyway, not I'm suggesting you want to go and divorce anyone, but anyway I'm just saying it heresy to translate the Bible into English 
false that you didn't care. You would probably have to be careful about your answer. Certainly in the later period of the Anglo-Saxon England, they didn't care. Okay? Translating into the vernacular was fine. They seem to have this bizarre notion that if you wanted people to read the Bible, it's probably better to write it in a language they could understand. So well before the later controversies. Protestants and Catholics live peacefully together. Well, of course, that's nonsense because there weren't any Protestants that we know of. Okay, so now let's concentrate a bit on Christianity. And I'm going to try and pick up some pieces here which um, find their way into the literature, which you may, or may or non- you may or may not know, but anyway, let's try and get some points across. So, there, we're going to see a bit of influence outside of literature, but not much. Um, but first of all, I'll get this and I'll explain this a bit later, there were splits in the Christian church in Anglo-Saxon England. The first split is that there were two types of Christian church. That's why I say Christianity. There is the Celtic or British Christian church, which hangs over from the Roman occupation. And then there is the Roman church, which I know sounds odd, which is the, the church of Rome, uh, led by the Pope. There's also, which no one ever told me this when I was a student, there is a split in terms of once they do decide to go down the Roman path in the way that um, the church was organised. There is the secular church and the regular church. And I'll come back to that. And then I'm going to take you a bit through monasticism and the types of texts you come across. So, the Christian message is quite interesting. And I suppose it's interesting from our perspective, why did it appeal um, to the Anglo-Saxons? So, I'm going to show you here an illustration from a manuscript, Junius 11, which is a lovely Anglo-Saxon manuscript and is sitting in the Bodleian. And it really kind of sums up the Christian message quite nicely to them. I don't know if you can see this, but I can zoom in a lot further. But anyway, at the top you have uh, the righteous being welcomed into heaven and particularly the angels there. They're all offering gifts and that's rather jolly. At the bottom you have the unrighteous. And here you can see... the arrows being thrown out and spears at the devils, one hitting that poor devil there where it hurts, and the damned being cast literally into the mouth of hell. And that really is the Christian message. If you follow Christianity, you're going to get to the top of that folio. If you don't, that's where you will end up. A very, very simple message to the Anglo-Saxons which they could pick up. Moreover, it gave them a narrative. It told them how the world began and it told them how the world was going to end in one book. Very nice. And that was something which clearly vexed them. And this is where my little sparrow comes in um, because it's it's a well-quoted piece of of literature. It's from Bede. Uh, But it, it kind of picks up on this idea that they were struggling to find a story that they could fit themselves into. And this is from Bede, it's about uh, a council for King Edwin. Edwin is a king in Northumbria and um, uh, Paulinus comes up and tries to convert him. Edwin is pagan at the time and he has a high priest called Coifi who says, well, we should listen to this new stuff because we've been following the old religion and things haven't been going well. And along comes one of Edwin's counselors and he says this, Your Majesty, when we compare the present life of man with that time of which we have no knowledge, it seems to me like the swift flight of a lone sparrow 
through the banqueting hall where you sit in the winter months to dine with your thanes and counsellors. Inside there is a comforting fire to warm the room. Outside the wintry storms of snow and rain are raging. This sparrow flies swiftly in through one door of the hall and out through another. While he is inside, he is safe from the winter storms, but after a few moments of comfort, he vanishes from sight into the darkness whence he came. Similarly, man appears on earth for a little while, but we know nothing of what went before this life and what follows. And specifically, therefore, if this new teaching can reveal any more certain knowledge, it seems only right that we should follow it. So the conversion of the Northumbrians under Edwin is linked to this particular lovely image of the sparrow, but because it told people where they were coming from and where they were going to, and that's the message of things like the seafarer and the wanderer. It also provided a place and time for a people who, if you remember, had come from abroad. They had invaded a country, and they had conquered a country, and they were struggling to work out, well, why the hell should we be in charge of this country, apart from the fact we've got sharper axes. They also gave them a clear example of who they could relate to. The Israelites, again, a a migratory tribe, perhaps, out of their home, struggling to find their home, beset by heathens all around them, and particularly when we get to the later period, the Anglo-Saxons are beset by the Viking heathens. But it presented problems to the Anglo-Saxons, or particularly to the Christians. First of all, Christ isn't Woden. Christ isn't Thor. Christ is dragged to a cross and nailed on a cross and dies. Okay, he is resurrected and ascends to heaven, but if it was Thor, Thor wouldn't have been dragged onto a cross. Thor would have taken out every Roman centurion within about a ten-mile radius and then gone and had a feast. Where are the heroes? Think through the New Where are the heroes in the New Testament? Well, it's all the people who then struggle on and get crucified or get slaughtered. Heroes in the Old Testament, true. Perhaps that's why they fixed on it. And also, the people were there, were going, all right, well, I'm listening to you, I'm listening to you, but what about all these other beliefs we've had for centuries and centuries? What do we do with it? Well, the model of Christian conversion, which is across Europe, there's nothing new about this, but the model, as we see in Anglo-Saxon England, was to take the ideas and the beliefs and the things that the Anglo-Saxon treasured and modify them. So, very quick example. Dome, which is one of the um, key elements of heroism. Dome and loaf. Judgment. They pick that up, they take it from the poetry or discussions of heroism and say, yes, and there's going to be a doomsday, a doomsday, a judgment day. The dream of the rood. You have done this, I know, but you know Christ is presented as a Germanic hero. He's going to battle the cross as his retainer. The followers sing a funeral dirge, just like the end of Beowulf. The Rothwell cross, with its, on one side, its vine scroll, possibly linked to the tree of the world, the tree of life, Yggdrasil, in Old Norse. That's why in the Dream of the Rood, the cross is described as a beam, a tree. You know, it's very elusive when it describes it. And is this, this talking about the tree of life? This is an attempt to show you the, um, I don't know really what you would describe it, the structure of Old Norse beliefs. And here we have Middle Earth, Midgard. We have the tree of life running all the way through. There you have Asgard and Valhalla. And here you have Nithard chewing at the roots of the tree and so on. It's all a bit confused. And if you've ever read that bizarre book, House of Leaves, you'll be even more confused. And other things, it's it's appropriationist. Again, again, it's fusion. Judith, classic um, heroine of the Old Testament, dresses a warrior. The language she's putting on rings, but they're ring mail. 
she goes and seduces Holofernes. It's a battle, and then they indeed insert the battle into the poem, as they do in Exodus um, and other poems. And at the end of The Wanderer and the Sea Fairy, you are, you are led to Valhalla. You're not led to a little cloud with a guy with a big beard. The language is of the feast in the sky. You are led to Valhalla. So they're appropriating these ideas. Okay, what was the impact of Christianity? Moving swiftly on. Well, it's kind of like the one thing which we have, which physically, I suppose, survives in terms of buildings. There are stone churches from the Anglo-Saxon period. You only have to go down Corn Market Street and you can see one, but here's one in Bricksworth. And it does give us a lot of physical evidence um, about their architecture. And then by looking at the way the churches were constructed, this can give us evidence about how they practice Christianity, which, as we will see, possibly influenced the literature. Art. Loads of wonderful, beautiful art from the Anglo-Saxon period. This is a reliquary cross in the Victorian Albert. Um, I've grown up with this cross. I had to write a dissertation on it. But anyway, it's really nice. And you've got the crucified Christ carved in ivory. Lovely gold filigree design around that. And then these sort of enamels of the four evangelists looking down on Christ. So a nice example if you're writing about the dream of the rood of jewelled crosses in Anglo-Saxon art. So let us think a bit more about the clergy so, as I said, um, and I've said this many, many times, Christianity was here before the migration, the Romans were Christianized, and that survived in the British or Celtic Church. St. Augustine arrives in 597 and brings the Roman idea of how Christianity should be practiced. And there is this split which is resolved at the Synod of Whitby um, when the Anglo-Saxons, or those kingdoms, decide to go down the Roman route. But there is a split in the actual structure of the church. We have what you might think is a, is a contradiction in terms of the secular clergy and the regular clergy. The regular clergy are monks because they live after a rule, a regular, okay? In the secular clergy, these are generally the people who went out and tried to convert and moved around and did a lot of um, pastoral duties. You have all kinds of structures, the types of things you've come across, bishops, priests, deacons, doorkeepers, readers, exorcists, acolytes. Exorcism was something which they easily believed in. As we've seen, there was that um, remedy in Bald's Leech book uh, for how to get rid of the devil. There is a lovely story, though. I'll just read it out because it's one of those ones that makes you just go, ah. Um, where a nun, I think she was in Barking in Essex, but it may not be. Anyway, she's a nice place. Uh, she was going around the garden and she, she got a bit peckish and she um, picks up a bit of lettuce and eats it. Um, unfortunately, she didn't see that the devil was sitting on the lettuce. Um, so she swallows the devil, and obviously her head starts spinning around and things like that. And they bring in um, a priest who uh, summons and addresses the devil, and the devil says, Thus quoth, what did it ichira? What did it ichira? It sat me on, on, on arnum leatricia, vacom heo, and bat me. Spoke thus, what did I do to her? What did I do to her? I was sitting on a lettuce when she came and bit me. Then the man of God in great anger exercises her and he spins out. But it's this lovely little picture of the devil saying, well, it wasn't my fault. I was just sitting innocently on this uh, vegetable here and along she comes and takes a great chunk out of me. So it's her own fault. And actually the personification of the devil in Anglo-Saxon literature is interesting. Okay, 
A few more facts about priests. They were ordained at the age of 30, which is still, I think, the traditional age by a bishop. But gradually you start to see the domination of, of the monks, monasticism. And this really is the type of, uh, or which really does have a major influence on our uh, perception of Anglo-Saxon Christianity. But, just to finish off, secular clergy were allowed to marry, no problem at all What with, with that whatsoever. They seem to have got along with the monks to begin with, but as we see the power struggles, particularly in the 10th century under the Benedictine revival, there is this almost PR campaign against the secular clergy by the monks, saying that they're unclean or uplendish, backwards, they don't know what they're doing, and really it's only the monks who uh, know what they're doing. And so the monks start moving into the spheres of the secular clergy. They start going out, looking after the local community, and they bring in the laity to their, their masses and feasts in monasteries and so on. So a shift of power. So, a bit more about monasticism. Well, we should remember that St. Augustine, who comes in 597, was a monk, so you can understand why it starts off. And most of the Celtic missionaries were monks. There are two forms of monasticism. There's the oddballs who go off and live in caves, the hermits. We're not really that interested in them, but it would come up in poems like St. Guthlac. But more interesting are the monks who live in an ordered community under an abbot or an abbess. And you will, you've probably come across Cistercians, Augustinians, and things like that mentioned. Don't worry about that. The only order you need to concentrate on for the Anglo-Saxon period are the Benedictines, the black monks. They were pretty much the sole order. And they ordered it quite there. They had a very well-structured um, society. They had a cathedral run by a bishop, an abbey run by an abbot, and priories reports to the abbot. And in the monasteries, of course, there were all these various things you'll have heard about and gone around on school trips and seen infirmaries, refectories. But the key thing is the scriptorium. So the Benedictines, just to say, were um, after St. Benedict of Nursia, there were clearly other orders. So, so, so St. Augustine um, was from St. Andrew's Monastery. But anyway, there were other orders, but it really hits us in the Benedictine revival, mid-10th century, when there was this explosion of learning and writing under St. Dunstan, Ethelwald, and Oswald. And they had so embraced the rule of St. Benedict that by 970 they came up with their own version of it, the Regularis Concordia. And... Here is an illustration of the Regulars Concordia. There it is. Ticker taping around down here. And there's this monk desperately trying to hold on to it before he gets swamped. But why this is also important is it states, as that other illustration I gave to you last week or the week before, King Dunstan Ethelwald. Church and state merged. By the mid-10th century, the Benedictines were pretty much in control. All right, could you be a monk or a nun? Well, it's very easy. It's a simple acid test. What time did you get up? Did you get up today, this is? Did you get up afternoon? Between 11 and 12? 10 and 11? I don't know what time I got up. I mean, it's early in this. 8 and 9? 7 and 8? Did anyone here get up before 7 o'clock? You did. Are you a rower? Claire, yes you are, rowers, or you haven't been to bed, one of the two. Pa! Monks had to get up at half two. That was in the winter. This is your monastic day, day in, day out. 
2.30 to 6.30 and you fit in some work around that. Now, the important point of that is that punctuating the day, there are set ceremonies. These are named after the uh, watches, the Roman watches, by the way. Set ceremonies so that we, when we piece all this together, we have what we call the divine office. Okay? A regular setting out of what a monk had to do each day. And when they went to these prayers, these prayer meetings, etc., to lords, to matins, there were set readings, readings that they would have read or, been re- or would have been read out to them. And that explains where we get some of our literature from. So we have homilies, sermons, saints' lives. Um, these are the types of things you may have come across again and again and again. Just a quick mention about the Bible. There are numerous versions of the Bible in um, Anglo-Saxon England, as in different types of versions. The predominant one was St. Jerome's Vulgate. So if you ever have to go and refer to the Bible and say, oh, well, this is like this in St. John, or whatever, don't use the King James Version. Go and find yourself the Douay Reims Version. That's an English translation of the Vulgate, or as near as you're going to get. So the text that we have fit in, particularly when they're coming from the scriptoriums, into the divine office. And that's why on you see, towards the bottom of your um, handout, I have three extracts from some of Alfred's Catholic homilies. Men who are beloved men, for a few days now we've been reading this gospel. It's the type of thing you would open if you were speaking to a bunch of monks. This gospel... They knew Yerad was, this gospel which we've now read, Matthew, the gospel, and so on. So even by the openings of these, these texts, we can see that they were designed to be read out to the brethren. And if you look at Af- Alfred's Catholic homilies, you're not required to do them. You're doing saints' lives at the moment, or like St. Edmund, but if you look at his Catholic homilies, of which he wrote about 100-odd, you'll see that they are all have these bizarre titles. These fit into the calendar. So that, Pentecost, Sunday of Pentecost, you would read that text in the monastic divine office on that Sunday. And the calendar, which shifts according to the date of Easter, we call the temporali. But importantly, what happens here, he gives a homily and then he explains it. He will give you a text and he will, he will go to town on it. He will explain it, it will take all the symbolism items out of it as well. Saints' lives, which you are looking at, like the St. Edmund, these have fixed dates, and these are Alfred's saints' lives. He wrote quite a few of them. Um, I don't, can't remember the date of St. Edmund, but anyway, you can, you can see January the 9th. That is always going to be that feast day. It doesn't really matter. Saints' lives are based around a calendar called the Sanctorali, and there are two types of saints' lives. There's the Passion, where the saint is m- slaughtered, or there is the Vita, and usually a confessor, where someone converts to Christianity. But they're very popular. To come back to an earlier point, these are heroes or heroines. They provide the, the parallel to the Norse gods. They're full of miracles, full of wonderly, wondrously brave things that they do. They also give you a history of the church. Remember the Anglo-Saxons struggling to find a place. So very, very helpful. And great tales help in the conversion. And, and I don't have time to do this, um, I'll show you that clip of film. The other thing about Saints' Lives, and I hate to be cynical about this, is they were big money. They made you money. If you had relics in your church, people would come, pilgrims would come and try and get saved and cured. 
they would spend money, etc., etc. So there are numerous stories in Anglo-Saxon England of monasteries stealing relics from other churches and trying to hoover them up so that they became a good place. Why did I put her up? Oh, I know, yes. Uh, well, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, the reason is that when, I, when she died, I just thought the, the reaction and, you know, and all the stuff that's gone on afterwards is almost a beatification of this woman. It was just bizarre. It was over the top. So this worshipping of an individual and there's these theories and conspiracy theories and surrounds which they seem to like in saints' lives, which may seem odd. I don't think it's too alien from what we can go over, to, uh, over the board on. Okay. The effect on literature of monasticism. Well, obviously the divine office requires books. Books require scribes. Scribes require to be literate. So therefore you have to educate them. So all of these come together and we get a major shift in Anglo-Saxon literacy and work. I'll come on to this idea in, this, in terms of what they're training in the rhetoric in a second. But what is quite interesting is they were more interested in what happened outside the story. We all know the standard stories in the Bible, but what interested them were what the commentators were saying about them. So when you read the Dream of the Rood and texts like that, they go way outside of the Gospel story. There's no mention in the Gospels about the cross being chopped down. And in the Gospel I read and was taught, Christ carries the cross to Calvary, but in the Dream of the Rood, it's put there before. And the liturgy, the way the Mass is celebrated uh, with all the various chants also seems to influence the poetry and the literature. So the dream of the rude draws images from the liturgy as well. So, common thing you will come across is their use of rhetoric, which I'll explain in a second, and then the way they used to interpret texts. So when they looked at a story, and this, you may find this in poetry, certainly start looking at it, they looked at it at four levels. What literally happened in a story? Was there an allegory of what might have been the allegorical meaning of it? What was the moral meaning of it? What could it tell you about the way you would live? And then what would it tell you about the afterlife and the way your soul was going? A well-used example. So, it's from Donoghue. I think this is actually appears in um, Dante as well. So the story of the Israelites, the exodus of the Israelites from the Egyptian tyranny, literally it's that, but if you think of an allegory, it's a Christian's redemption through Christ, because this is the Old Testament prefigure of the New Testament. The moral, it's a conversion of the soul from sin to grace, and the spiritual, what happens to your soul, it will be, it's a, it's a way of describing what will happen to your soul when you die and you get out of earthly slavery. So you will see that type of stuff going on in Alfred's explication of the homilies he looked at. Rhetoric. They were trained in rhetoric, and you will want to look for this in the text that you read. Why does Alfred write in this sort of rhyming, rhythmical prose? Because he heard it in poetry, and also because he was trained in rhetoric. So, an example. Martin Luther King's speech from 1963... Let freedom ring, let freedom ring, let freedom, freedom to ring. You can see that the way King delivered this speech and many of his other speeches, if you ever analyse them, he's using rhetorical devices such as repetition, such as intensifiers. Repetition again, again. Bringing in the audience with the first person, singular or plural. He was a master of this. 
and so were the Anglo-Saxons. A sermon by Wollstan, picking up any of these. There is etcher brinner grimmer ye menched, and there is etcher greere, there is etcher utcher, and there is sorghum and sargum. So we have repetition, we have rhyming, sorghum and sargum. We have etcher, which is also an intensifier. So when they're writing these texts, although we read them in very dry and dusty books, remember in the case of this, it was a sermon, it was being delivered to an audience to put the fear of God into them. So that was a lot of information there, a hell of a lot, and because I was trying to cover three religions in 50 minutes, which isn't easy. So what can you take from this? Well, first of all, don't just think it was Christianity in Anglo-Saxon England. There were other religions there. We have the Celtic beliefs and we have the Germanic beliefs. But our understanding of the Celtic beliefs and Germanic beliefs is tenuous, to say the least. But we can piece together and we get some clues, these fossils. When would magic become science? Science become magic? Well, as you've seen, I've shown you numerous examples where you would probably say, well, that's just nonsense, but they would have believed in it. Splits in the Christian church. This is important to note, not just the the bringing together under the Roman church, but also the fact that although monasticism was dominant, there was the secular clergy as well, and that actually leads to tensions later on and possibly the collapse of Anglo-Saxon England. But, major impact on education. So, regardless of whether you're a Christian or whether you understand the Christian stories, that's by the by. What you have to bear in mind is the development of monasticism and the ordering really led to a, an explosion of um, literature and education. Finally, the last, next week, the last um, lecture in this series, um, I'm going to look at manuscripts. We'll work a bit on, we we'll use a riddle as a sort of binding tool for it. Uh, but I also want to talk things to do about authorship, which may have come up elsewhere, but anyway about authorship and why that is important in Anglo-Saxon and their views on authorship how not to handle a manuscript, and then finally we'll start thinking about editions, the types of things you're struggling with in Mitchell and Robinson, and how they come to pass, and why that might be important for the exams you're going to sit. Right, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.